It's our honor this morning to have Dr. Robert Smith with us. Dr. Smith is the uh, Charles Carter Chairman of the Baptist Preaching. He chairs that chair at uh, Beeson Divinity School, and he is, he's a dear friend of mine. Many of you have heard me share my testimony about how God began to work about midway through seminary and, and how dry and, and lifeless I found my faith to be. And God led me into this man's class and... and some of the things he did, he's not even aware of, but he was, he was a drop of water that, that God sprinkled on my soul and, 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 and used in a tremendous way. And, and I love this man. Uh, I share this with you guys. You, you guys can talk back to him, okay? You, because when, when I was preaching in his classes, if he was quiet, wasn't nothing happening in the pulpit, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you. But if you were preaching and you were saying anything remotely biblical, man, he was encouraging. He was he was amen and he was preach preacher those kind of things. So I, I love this man and uh, Eagles Wing Church is is thrilled to death to have you with us today. So, Brother Robert, I'm going to ask you to come and just share what God's put on your heart, and I'm going to ask you guys to give him a, a warm welcome. Okay. Thank you, buddy. Move that pulpit for me over to the side. It's a real joy to be at the uh, Eagles Wing Church to fellowship with my sisters and brothers. Um, Pastor Nelson Hanna is special to me. I'll never forget the message because he marries the prophetic with the pastoral preaching on the life of Saul, Old Testament Saul. The title of his sermon was something like, it's either God's way or the highway. Um, A message that's very memorable, indelibly etched on the membrane of my mind. A message that brought tears to me and to, to many because he was talking about the seriousness of the call of God. That there is no compromising there is no um, other option. It's God's way or the highway. Very convicting. I still hear you preach that. I'm so happy to see what God has done in your life, you and Sister Kathy's life. Sister Kathy, every time I see her, I told her husband, you know, you're more beautiful than ever. You're Definitely not difficult on the optic nerves. <laughs> Very beautiful inside and outside. Happy for your, your daughter, your grandchild. Uh, happy for your writing ministry, which is an excellent one. And happy to see the vision that you have that's based uh, upon Christ. Not upon any group, not upon any denomination, not upon anyone except him. And God has made you a watchman, which means you need to see more than what the people see. You watch and you see. And uh, it's obvious to me that the people have seen what you have seen and they are following you. So I applaud the work that you're doing in the name of Jesus, this wonderful Jazz for Jesus band. I already mean this. You've got a great tune, but it's based upon a greater text. Every song that's sung has been based upon solid 
theology and accurate biblical exposition. You've sung theology. That's what you've done. So thank you for that. It's wonderful to be able to come behind uh, a group of people who've, who've sung the word of God so that you can preach the word of God so that there is, I, I tell, in some places you go to, honestly, after the singing is over, you have to give people kind of an exegetical exlax, you know, <laughs> clean them out. Singing all that heresy. Oh, you laid the foundation. And it's just a wonderful thing to be with the saints of God here. Would you pray with me? Even now, Lord Jesus, for I ask this in your name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles to the first chapter of Joshua, verses 1 through 9. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Joshua 1, 1 through 9. I want to talk about a new beginning. A new beginning. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear these words from the word, from Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Abraham Joshua Heschel was a Jewish rabbi who taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary from the years 1946 to 1972, New York City. I mention him not only because of his great work, but because of this particular statement he made. He said that sacred history is our attempt to view the past in the present tense. Sacred history is our attempt to view the past in the present tense. As if to say that the present tense stands on the shoulders of the past. That no one is self-made and that all of us who sit here stand on the shoulder of someone else who has lifted us up, prayed for us, and made possible for us to arrive at the places that we now stand. The past must never be forgotten. It's true that 
We are all participants in the past, but must not be prisoners of the past. And yet, though the past is a nice place to visit, is a terrible place to live in, we move from the past to the present. The watchword for the 16th century Protestant Reformation was the word ad fontes. All it means in Latin is to the sources. Back to the sources. Back to by Christ alone. And you hear the Bible tells us, tell us in what Peter, what uh, Paul was saying in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That needs to be heard again because there is no other option except Christ. There is no other way except Christ. And there is no such thing biblically as pluralism as if you could choose Zoroastrianism or choose Confucianism or Buddhism or Islam, etc. They're just options to God. There is only one way. And Jesus is that way. Hear him say in John 14 and 6, I am not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, by Christ alone, by faith alone. Here Paul say once again in Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By grace alone, once again Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and 8, by grace are ye saved through faith, by scripture alone. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew 4 and 4, man, human beings, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And all of those solas, which means only, all of those by Christ alone, by faith alone, by scripture alone, by grace alone, exist for soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. We do it for his glory. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Go back to the basics. Go back to the sources. Never leave what God has already said to us. And I keep hearing God say the same thing over and over again to us. There is no 67th book in the Bible. Once John wrote in Revelation 22, 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Period. That's it. And yet God has to keep saying the same thing to us over and over again because we either get amnesia or we are hard of hearing. And God just keeps saying it over and over and over again. No wonder the songwriter lifts up that great hymn, King of my life. I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-scarred brow. Lead me to Calvary, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. James Weldon Johnson has pitched his tent around this great song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, in order to remind us who are hard of hearing and who get amnesia, God of our weary years, 
God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far along the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray, lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand, true to our God, true to our native land. George Santayana, the great philosopher, reminds us that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I suppose that the one thing that we have not learned from history is that we have not learned from history. And God keeps taking us back to sacred history because, as Heschel would say, that sacred history is our attempt to view the past in the present tense so that we bring the past of what God has said into our present condition in terms of our lifestyle so that there's always an inextricable relationship between the past and the present which projects the future and reflects our Lord himself. Did not the Hebrew writer tell us in Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ, the same, the past, the heretofore, yesterday, the same today in the here and now, and the same forevermore in the hereafter, so that they're always kept together. This text opens up with a cataclysmic announcement which has a catastrophic effect. Verse 1. Now, after the death of Moses, after the death of Moses, after the death of Moses, God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's 14th century. That's 2,400 years ago. Maybe you don't hear the thundering volume of that word. Moses, my servant, is dead. Didn't mean anything to you, to me. We didn't know Moses. Didn't affect us. But Moses is the only leader that these people have had in 40 years. He has been their emancipator who has brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. He's dead. He's been the lawgiver who received the law on Mount Sinai, brought it down to them. And while he's bringing the law down, they are breaking at least five of them, dancing around a golden calf that's been made by the assistant pastor, Aaron, the brother of Moses. And here is Moses who becomes the intercessor, gets in between Israel that God is threatening to destroy, and God. And in the 32nd chapter of Exodus, verses 12 to 14, God says, I'm going to wipe out the people. They have made an image, what I told them not to do, and they're dancing around it. And they're saying, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. On and on and on. And Moses said, God, you can't do it. You can't wipe them out because you promised your friend Abraham that out of his seed, you were going to make a nation or make nations who would be blessed. They would be as multitudinous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And out of that seed, not seeds, but seed will come one talking about Christ who blessed the world. So you can't start over with me and uh, obliterate and annihilate and exterminate them. You can't do it. And the Bible says in Exodus 32 verse 14 that when Moses told God what God had said, God relented. God backed up. God took it back. Can you imagine? 
God's saying, all right, you're right. Because Moses knew that God must conduct himself according to covenantal conduct. In other words, God has to do what God has said. And Moses knew that the only way you can move God is to tell God what God has said. God is not impressed with our credentials. God is not impressed with our degrees. You don't move God that way. God is not impressed with your bank acquisition. God is not concerned about what you have under your carport or what you have on your back or what you have in your closet. That doesn't move God. You want to move God? Tell God what God has said. And when you tell God what God has said, God is obligated to do what God said. Tell God, you said in Psalm 37 and 4, if I would delight myself in the Lord, you would give me the desires of my heart. God, you said, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. You said that in Matthew 7 and 7. God, you said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus our Lord. You said that in Philippians 4, 19. And when you keep telling God what God has said, and first of all, you've got to know what he said before you can tell him what he said. That's why you've got to get in the book. It's not enough to talk about what saith the Lord. You've got to know thus saith the Lord. You've got to get in that book and by covenant of conduct, tell God what he said. And God will move based upon his fidelity and his faithfulness to his own word. But now Moses is dead. Moses, the one who is a work of miracles by the power of God, who could take a dry old stick and stretch it out over the Red Sea and the sea would depart. Dead! And what are they going to do after four decades? Forty years! Dead. We ought to have some sensitivity toward that. We know what it's like as a nation, as a family, and as individuals to hear that word dead. April the 15th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln is assassinated in the Forbes Theater. Dead. December the 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor bombing. Hundreds of soldiers killed by the Japanese bombs. Dead! September the 15th, 1963, 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. Sunday school is over and young girls are on their way to worship. And they're in the bathroom getting ready to come out. And a bomb goes out. And four little girls. Dead! November the 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Dead, April the 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Dead, April the 19th, 1995, there in Oklahoma City, there is the Oklahoma Federal Building, bombed, hundreds of people, dead. April the 20th, 1999, the Columbine shooting in Denver, Colorado. Dead! September the 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers and hundreds of people. Dead! September the 14th, 2012, the Sandy Hook shootings, where 20 students are killed and six adults. Dead! And do we not forget... All of these events, 
where we know what it's like to lose someone deep in our lives, in our family. I'll never forget, my family will never forget October the 30th, 2010, where I got a call. My wife and I just concluded ministry that day. I'd been teaching. We had a wonderful meal. We were in Baton Rouge, Red Stick, Louisiana. Went to bed that night, planning on getting up the next morning about six or so to catch a plane to come back to Cincinnati, Ohio. The rain, the phone rang about 1.30. That's Central Standard Time. You know, when people call you that kind of time of morning, they're not calling you to see how you're doing. They're not calling you to joke and to kid. And my wife answered the phone and stayed on the phone for what seemed to be and eternity. And finally she hung up the phone. I said, what's wrong, baby? She says, it's Tony. Tony is our baby's son, 34 years of age. And she says, he's been shot. His middle brother, our son Marcus, was going over to the restaurant where he had worked that night to check on him. Mark called back in about 45 minutes. said, Daddy, because I'd gone into the bathroom to turn my face to the wall like Hezekiah and asked God to save his life. And Mark said, it's him. The coroner's office from Hamilton County coroner's office has put his body uh, in the body bag and they're taking him there. And I'll never forget that. 34 years of age, working on a job, frying chicken and fries and so forth, doing what he's supposed to do. Dead. And all of us know those words. What do you do when Moses is dead? And some people have experiences as if it's a moment that's frozen in time and they can't get past that word. Dead. What am I going to do now? I'll tell you what you're going to do. Though they are dead, God is saying, Moses is dead, but I am not. I'm not dead. The same God that kept them is the same God that will keep you. The death of a loved one, the death of a relationship, the death of a job, the death of a career, the disappointment, the betrayal, death, a divorce, death, a desertion, death. And what will you do after you hear those words? You will say, God is still alive. And he will give me the strength not to get over. Because you don't get over that. You get through it. Yea, though I walk not around, not over, not under, but through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalm 23 and 4, because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, Joshua, you and all these people go over the Jordan and possess the land that I promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and reiterated that in Genesis 15 and 18. You go on and possess that land that I've already promised to them. Because what God is saying to Joshua is this. I bury my workers, but I don't bury my work. I bury my workers. Moses is dead. The worker is dead. But the work goes on. I need to hear that. 
Because every one of us, did you hear what the brothers um, were singing this morning, the sisters? It was an encouraging word. And do you not hear the words of Robert Robinson, who writes, Come Thou Fount? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Here it is. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The truth of the matter is, we become arrogant. And if we're not careful, we will think that we are indispensable. In other words, we are absolutely necessary. God didn't need Robert Smith. God was doing fine without Adam and Eve. I think it's really why he made them last. Because had he made them first, the temptation would have been, look what us did. (laughs) But when he made them last, all they could look around and see was something that God had done. You and I need to stop acting like we're the only rooster in the barnyard and the only pebble on the beach and the only fish in the sea as if we are necessary. We, I'm going to say it the way I want to say it, we ain't necessary. If you think you're necessary, then don't mess around and die. And if God gives you an opportunity to look back on your life, you'll see that that car that you just paid off, somebody else is going to drive it. And that house that you've got the title deed to, somebody else is going to live in it. And that beautiful woman that you've been holding and loving all these years, somebody else may marry her. And we've got to come to the place where we come to church not feel like we need to be drafted, not feel like we need to be cursed, not feel like we need to be uh, asked and begged for. We ought to be so optimistic and excited that Pastor Hannah doesn't need to ask us anything. Lord, I'm just glad to be in your service just one more time. You don't have to let me live. I'm just glad to be in your service one more, one more time. Can I? serve in the evangelistic ministry? Can I be a part of the music ministry? Can I be a part of the teaching ministry? Can I be a part of the nursing ministry? God has given me these gifts and I know that he doesn't need me, but I sure don't need him. So let me serve and give him praise, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, never dying soul to save and fitted for the sky to serve this present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my power engage to do my master's will. Moses is dead. I am not. Moses is dead. I bury my workers, but I don't bury my work. Now, you carry the work on. You and all these people leave the wilderness where you've been for 40 years and go across the Jordan and possess the land that I've already promised to give unto you. This book of Joshua, 24 chapters, is not about Moses. Moses is mentioned 57 times in 24 chapters. That's like twice at least in each chapter. But it ain't about Moses. I know that Deuteronomy 18.15 says that God's going to raise up a prophet like unto Moses, which is a prediction, a messianic promise of the coming Jesus who will outdistance Moses. But it's not about Moses. Moses asked the Lord in Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 to 23, that passage there, uh, I want to see your glory. 
I want to see you face to face. And the Lord says, no, I can't let you see my glory. Because if I let you see my glory, then it would be the same as if you were writing your own obituary. Because no one can see my face and live. But I tell you what, uh, since you want to see me in my naked purity, in my raw radiance, I'm going to take and put my hand over your face. And then I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and blindfold you because I know how curious and nosy you are. And I'm going to walk past you. And then I'm going to move my hand and let you see my back parts. Because you can't handle a face-by-face direct contact with me. Moses asked the Lord, Lord, I want to go over to the promised land. And God says, no. In fact, God even says this, and I don't want you to say another word about it. I'm through with it. I'm going to let you view it from the heights of Mount Pisgah. Look to the north, south, east, and west. But you're not going over because you didn't honor me in the sight of my people. And you know, this prayer that Moses prayed, he died, it was not answered. 1,500 years later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, our Lord is transfigured. And guess who's one of the personalities who comes from heaven to stand in the promised land alongside of Jesus? It's Moses. It took 1,500 years for that prayer to get answered. What's your problem? How long have you been waiting? I want you to understand, Robert Smith, and every one of us, that even after the prayer dies, the prayer is still activated. And some of us are sitting here right now, and we are the beneficiaries of people who've been dead a long time, but God has heard their prayers, and we're being blessed because they prayed for us. Somebody prayed for me, had me on their mind, took the time to pray for me. I'm so glad they prayed. I'm so glad they prayed. I'm so glad they prayed for me. How long can you wait? You've been waiting for deliverance? You've been waiting for that child to come back home. You've been waiting for mending in your relationship. You've been waiting for recovery of your financial losses. You've been waiting for a breakthrough in your life. Trust God. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time because, in essence, God is not in time. Time is in God. And when he gets ready, he will step in according to his own time and design to do what will give him glory. Moses, my servant, is there. It's not about Joshua. And Joshua is the personality who will take over for Moses. His name is changed in Numbers 13, 16. His name is Hosea. Moses renames him Joshua which in the Hebrew, Joshua, is the same as Yeshua or Jesus in the Greek. Same. And yet, Joshua is able to take the children of Israel over the Jordan River to the promised land out of the wilderness. But Jesus takes us out of the wilderness of sin through the Jordan River of spiritual death and separation from God into a land where there is eternal rest for the people of God. No wonder Matthew calls him in verse 21 of chapter 1. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. This book 
is about God. God is the hero. He's the one who fights for Israel. He's the one who delivers Israel. He's the one who blesses Israel. Well, the text says, Moses, my servant, is dead. I understand that in the original language in which this passage is written, in fact, all of the Bible, a little bit of Aramaic and Ezekiel, Daniel, etc., and then in the New Testament in Greek, that there were no punctuation marks, no periods, no ellipses, no question marks, interrogative marks, no ellipses, no commas, none of that. In fact, no chapters, no verses <laughs> at all, just words. But we have translations, and translations give us a theological perspective and understanding of what God is trying to say to us. For instance, right in your version, more than likely, unless you have one version I'm going to mention in a moment, Moses, my servant, is dead. You probably have a period. Makes sense. I mean, after the word dead, what other punctuation mark are you going to use? Period. Termination. Then, that's what the contemporary English version has. Most of my servant is dead, period. That's what the New Revised Standard Version has. Most of my servant is dead, period. That's what the Revised Standard Version has. Most of my servant is dead, period. That's what the NIV has. Most of my servant is dead, period. That's what the REV says. Most of my servant is dead, period. That's really what the today's English version says. Moses, my servant is dead, period. And that's the way too many Christians live their lives. They live by the termination of a period. After a crisis, it's all over. But the King James Version, that was good enough for Paul and Silas, good enough for the Hebrew children, good enough for my mother and father, and good enough for me. Moses, my servant, is dead. Semicolon. Because a semicolon suggests continuation. It ain't the end. In fact, that really is the theology that God wants us to adopt in Scripture. There it is in Genesis 50 and 20. Listen to what Joseph says. This is the rendering. This is the essence of it. Though it may not be this way in your body, this is the essence of it. Joseph says to his brothers, you men are to be free evil. Don't you put a period there. Semicolon. But God meant to me for good to save much people alive. Psalm 30 verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night. Don't you put a period there. Put a semicolon there. But joy comes in the morning. Psalm 34 and 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Don't you put a period there. Because Pastor Nelson Hannah prayed this morning that God would take and heal that sister. Said verse 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Semicolon. But the Lord delivers them from them all. John 16, 33. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. Don't put a period there. Semicolon. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. You better not put a period there. Because if you put a period there, you shouldn't be here right now. Semicolon. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God wants us to live by a theology of the semicolon, which suggests continuation, and not a theology of the period, which suggests termination. 
He is not done yet. In fact, that's what this church is all about. You put a semicolon here. The lease is up here. It's not time to disband. God says, I'm going to move you up the road about seven miles, 65 north, because I want you to continue the ministry, and I'm going to bless you and give you a church building because that's really what God is about. And here's some of you sitting here right now. You've been living by the theology of the period, the termination. God wants you to move on because in him uh, there is no end. Every round goes higher and higher. We go from faith to faith, from grace to grace, and from glory unto glory. Now, semicolon is interesting. God is saying, keep the period there. Because you can't have a period. You can't have a semicolon without a period. Keep the period there and put a comma underneath it. (laughs) That's all I want you to do. Because you need the period. Why do you need that? Because that's your testimony. You need that so that you can always look back and see where God has brought you from. One of the reasons why we are not effective ministers in terms of our testimony is because we only tell people about the A.D., after Christ, as if we don't have a past, as if, as if we have not fallen, as if we have not sinned, as if God has not brought us out uh, of the muck and the miry clay uh, of iniquity. We need to talk about what God has done, because we are part of the once was group. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Paul, in the 8th chapter of Acts, verse 2 and 3, is going to go into the city of Damascus and drag people out who are worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ, put them in jail, have them beaten. He's been the one in chapter 7 who has held the clothes of those who have stoned Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. That's chapter (laughs) 8. Chapter 9, the one who had been arresting people in chapter 8 is arrested by Jesus in chapter 9. The one who had been given orders in chapter 8 is now taking orders. Lord, what do you want me to do? The one who in chapter 8 was the church's number one public enemy in chapter 9 is the church's number one public defender. One chapter away. Chapter 8 looks bad. And God didn't wait until chapter 27. He took and changed his life one chapter away. We should never give up on people. People are in chapter 8. But there is a chapter 9, and God can fix it. God can transform. God can turn it around one chapter later. And trust God for your chapter 9. Stay on the porch like the prodigal son's father. Keep looking down the road and keep fattening the calf. Because the Bible says that when the boy came, the father ran, which is countercultural. Because fathers didn't run. He ran to the boy, which suggests that God is always encountering us. God always initiates. We don't come to God. He comes to us. People who say, I found the Lord, that's bad theology. The Lord has never been lost. You've never found the Lord. The Lord found you. Then he put a robe on him. You don't have to clean yourself up. You've been in the pigsty. I'm going to cover you with my robe. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Put shoes on his feet. A ring on his finger kisses him. 
and then says, go and kill to a servant the fatted and fattened calf. Not go and fatten the calf. That's going to take too long. That's two or three months. We've been fattening this calf ever since the boy left. Because we've been anticipating that he was coming back. And every day we gave him the best food, the best grade. Because we wanted to have instant celebration when he came back. I know what it's like to have a child out in the far country. And the one thing my wife and I did was to keep fattening the calf every day. Fattening, praying, living in anticipation and expectation. And the boy came back home. And if you have a situation like that, keep on fattening the calf. Keep on sitting on the porch. Keep on looking down the road and expect God to do what you can never do. You can't go into the far country, but he's out there and he'll bring him from the far country or her from the far country back home. So they will say, I'm going back because I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father and I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. And yet... Your son, make me one of the hard servers. Once a son, once a daughter, always a son and always a daughter. And God takes and brings us back into fellowship. Though the relationship is never canceled, the fellowship has been broken and God brings us back to himself. Well, what God is saying to us here is keep the period there and put a comma. Because the period allows people to see where I've brought you from. Some of you are looking at me right now. You ought to be shocked at where you are right now. I know the word cancer. I know the diagnosis. But you're able to, according to God's power, and I know what that's like personally, to outlive the doctor that gave you the diagnosis. Some of you are sitting here right now, you were voted in high school the most likely not to succeed. You weren't supposed to be successful. Your marriage was not supposed to last. You ought to be amazed that you're able to walk and speak and live in the kind of house you're living in and drive the kind of car you drive and have some money in your pocket and you know that you had small beginnings. And look what God has done. Keep that period there. Put a comma underneath it. But let there be space between the period and the comma. Because you don't want to push the comma against the period. That's not semicolon. There's got to be enough space so that though you visit the past, you don't live in it. You don't go back to that. You talk about where he brought you from. But sin is too dirty and hell is too real. You don't want to go back to that kind of living. You want to go back and talk about, look how far the Lord has brought me. Most of my servants say, now, now. That's the next word, the period. Semicolon. Now. And it ought to be now. Because when you read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai could be traveled to Kadesh Barnea, where the children of Israel balked, distrusted God when they sent out 12 spies. And 10 of them came back with a majority report saying, we can't take the land. There are giants there. It must have been a Baptist church, something like that, because they move by majority. And I keep telling people, one plus God is not a majority. None plus God is a majority. God is a majority all by himself. And only two came back and said, we don't want to talk about giants. We came to give a great report. G-R-A-P-E. We are so impressed with the grapes. God will take care of the giants. 
We've got to get to the place where we turn obstructions into opportunities. And we turn problems into possibilities. And we turn difficulties into invitations. And we turn hindrances into helps. And we turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. Stop talking about the giants. I want to hear somebody talk about grapes. They were so large that just one stalk of them. It took two people to carry a stalk. We are so enamored with grapes. Look beyond the difficulties. Stop worrying about how much it's going to cost. I serve a God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Now, that may be a thousand cattle on one hill. I don't know. But he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And whatever is needed, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. God will pay it. If we'll have faith to trust him, he will do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask to think according to the power that really works in us. Now, the text says in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, that they could have traveled from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea in 12 days. 12 days. When they got to Kadesh Barnea, biblical scholars will tell you that it's a distance from Kadesh Barnea to the Jordan River where they cross over of 28 days. They could have made the journey from Kadesh Barnea where they didn't trust God to the Jordan River to get ready to cross in 28 days. Instead, it took them about 40 years. They traded in 28 days for 40 years because they didn't trust God. And they participated those 20 years of age and older. They participated in the longest funeral procession in history. Just dropping dead every day because they did not trust God. God says, now, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6, God says, you've been in the mount, at the mountain of Horeb, which is synonymous to Mount Sinai. You've been there too long. It's time to move. So you come to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 8. And the word is this, that after Moses died, the Bible says that the children of Israel mourned his death for 30 days. Until the weeping and the days of grieving were over. So God says to Joshua, now, you've been waiting too long. It's time to leave. Some of us are stuck in ruts. How long have you been in this same place spiritually? How long has it been since you talked to the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secret? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your mind has been at ease? How long since your heart knew no burden? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you knew that he cared for you? Aren't you tired of being in that rut? And a rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. Well, you have been defrauded and hurt by a sibling, and you've decided that you'll never be reconciled to that sibling again. How long? How long are you going to stay in that rut over something that happened in church that you can't let go? How long? You're going to watch those videotapes 
at night of something that happened 25 years ago and the person that did it to you is dead and you're still having heart palpitations because you won't let it go. How long? Now, verse 2 of Joshua chapter 1, it's time to move on to claiming the promises that God has given to you. Notice what the text says in verse number 3. Every place that you set your foot is yours. As I promised Moses, it's a land that I'm about to give to you. In fact, I've already given it to you. Now, it sounds like God is talking out of both sides of his mouth. It's a land I'm about to give to you. In fact, I've already given it to you. That's really the rendering of it in the Hebrew. I'm about to give it to you, but I've already given it to you. What? What that really means is it's yours even though I've given it to you, it's not yours until you do this. Until you put your foot down on it and claim it. It's what is known as divine human instrumentality. That God demands that you and I do what we must do and he'll do what only he can do. It's not going to be yours, Jericho, until you march around the walls one time for six days and on the seventh day, seven times. And then you got to shout. And then without a bulldozer or a crane, I'll pull the walls down. But it's not going to happen until you march around and shout. Um, Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus said, well, servants, go fill up six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. And when you fill up the water pots, I'll look at the water and the two hydrogen atoms and eight oxygen atoms will look back at me and will blush in the wine. But not going to happen to you. Fill up the water pots. You say you want Lazarus raised? Roll back the stone. I know you can roll it back because you rolled it in front. And then if you want him to be free when he gets life, loose him, unwrap him and let him go. And we are waiting for God. Talking about we're waiting on God. God's waiting on Robert Smith. God is waiting on us to do what we are called to do. And then he will do only what he is able to do. He says in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9, be strong and very courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and very courageous. Fear not. Verse 9, because I'm with you wherever you go. I'm told that there are, 300, there are 365 fear knots in the Bible. And if that's true, then there's a fear knot for every day of the year. We have no reason to fear. He has got our front. He is our shield. Which means, as he says to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm your shield. Which means I'm not going to provide a shield. I'm going to be a shield. Which means nothing can get to me or get to you unless God permits it. And if God permits it, he has a purpose to promote. And it may take me a long time before I wonder, before I find out what that purpose is. He'll talk real big about Job to the devil. Job is in a quandary. He struggles because he doesn't know what the prologue is. God is talking to the devil about Job. Have you considered my servant Job? The devil said, yes, but I can't get to him because you have a hedge around him. You got him under divine protective custody. 
But if you move the hedge, since he is serving you because he's eyes on the payroll in the east, then I'll make him curse you to your face. Job doesn't know he's going to be in the Bible. He doesn't know he's going to be in the book of the Bible. And he certainly doesn't know that the book of the Bible is going to be named after him, the book of Job. He has no idea. God's talking about it. Chapters 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 3 to chapter 37, that's 35 chapters, God doesn't say one word. Check it out. One word! God takes and declares a moratorium on divine speech. Nothing. And Job has to wait 35 chapters for God to speak. And God finally speaks in chapter 38. And he answers Job out of the whirlwind. Verse 1. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? Job waited 35 chapters for God to finally say something. How long can you wait? Some of you are right now in chapter 27. You got 10 more chapters to wait. Some of you in chapter 17, you've got 20 more chapters to wait. And what's so sad is some of you may be in chapter 37 and you're ready to give up. You've got less than a chapter to wait. If you can just hold out till tomorrow. If you can just keep faith through the night, if you can just hold out to the morrow, you will discover that everything will be all right because God can turn it around because chapter 38 is on its way. He's got your front. He's got your back. Goodness and mercy follows after you. And he has the keys. As John hears Jesus say in Revelation 1, 17, 18, I got the keys of death, hell, and the grave. What says to me? That Satan is not as bad as we think he is. He doesn't even have the keys to his own house. Jesus has the key. The key represents authority. And if it's over your head, it's under his feet. He is sovereign. He is in control. The land that you place your foot on is yours. I've given it to you, and I'm about to give it to you, and it's going to be yours only when you participate in claiming what I've already promised to you. Joshua is the successor of Moses. He's Moses' assistant. He's not called uh, the servant of the Lord until chapter 24, verse 29. But now he's Moses' understudy. And what's so interesting to me about this is, in Numbers chapter 27, verses 22 and 23, Joshua is brought out in front of the assembly of Israel. Eliezer is the high priest. And Moses lays his hands on Joshua and commissions Joshua. Joshua is anointed before he's appointed. He's anointed before the job is made available. Moses is still living. He's anointed before he gets the appointments. And what we want so desperately is the appointment. Forget about the appointment. Stay faithful in your empowering. Stay faithful in your commissioning. And when it's time for you to be appointed, whatever it is, God will take care of that. And you won't have to clamor for it. You won't have to do anything uh, that's clandestine, uh, unscrupulous, um, without integrity. God will take care of of that. Now let me just hit one more thing or two and I'm going to quit because I understand you get out at 1130, you got long-winded preacher today and 50 years of preaching, I've never finished a sermon so I just as well as keep the record unbroken today. Then I'm going to let you go. 
they ought to cross the Jordan River. You look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 15 for just a moment. The text says that they will cross the Jordan River during the harvest season when the Jordan River has overflowed the banks of Canaan. What an inconvenient time. I've been to Israel a number of times. And I know that there are places in the Jordan River where the water comes up about 18 inches. That's right here. No problem. You know what God says? You're going to cross the Jordan River when the waters have overflowed the banks. What? God, can't you do it at a much more convenient time? Well, since I'm going to be opening up the Jordan River, it doesn't matter, does it? Uh, I know why God does this. You go back to chapter of Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. And the text says that when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, God did not lead them on the road that would go through Philistia, the Philistines, lest they become afraid and turn back to Egypt. He said, verse 17, that would have been the shorter route. (laughs) The way through Philistia would have been shorter. He took them the long way around. Verse 18, the way that leads toward the Red Sea. The long way around. Why does God take us the long way around? I want the short way. I decided years ago when I first accepted the call to come to Beeson. Didn't want to go to Beeson. Not because I didn't want to go to Beeson. I didn't want to be 500 miles away from Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, my mother believes the Bible. She said, little Robert, you don't need to be flying. Jesus said, lo, I'm with you all way, even to the end of the world. I I believe that because she didn't spell it right. But after I made a couple trips, since I was preaching 44 Sundays at a particular church, I'd leave that Sunday afternoon dead tired and turn an eight-hour trip into a 10-hour trip, stopping and stopping and stopping and stopping and snacking and something. And I get here on late Sunday night, sleep all day Monday in order to teach on Tuesday. Leave on Friday, dead tired. Had to drive all the way back to Cincinnati. Eight-hour trip now to about a 13-hour trip. Preach on Sunday. I tried that two weeks. I was not going to hold up. The car was not going to hold up. So I decided I was going to read Matthew 28 right, and it said L-O, not L-O-W. <laughs> and I got on the plane. I flew when Cincinnati had a Delta hub straight from Cincinnati, Ohio, on Monday morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. I would go straight to Birmingham and arrive in Birmingham at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. I arrived the same time I left. And I would fly back. Cincinnati from Birmingham, right back to Cincinnati. Until the Delta hub was no longer in Cincinnati. Now, I had gotten up to silver, which doesn't get you too much, silver level. But now, you have to fly from Cincinnati, go to Atlanta, wait two and a half hours for a connected flight, then go to Birmingham. And on Friday, you leave Birmingham, go to Atlanta, wait two and a half hours, sometimes three. And then go to Cincinnati. But there was four segments instead of two. And more miles. Move me up to gold. Then after a while, the Lord 
would be sending me various places, maybe go and preach at a conference, Mid-America Conference, Adrian Rogers Preaching Conference uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. Used to be a time I could fly straight from Birmingham to Memphis. But now I had to fly from Birmingham. I want to go to Memphis. No, I'm going to take you to Atlanta. Then get on the plane to Atlanta. Birmingham. Fly all the way over to Memphis. Then when I get ready to leave, I get on the plane in Memphis. Fly, let me out here, Birmingham. No, no, I'm going to take you to Atlanta. And to get on the plane and fly right back to Birmingham. Then I got up to Platinum. And now, and this is not an arrogant statement, I've been moved all the way up to Diamond. Diamond status. It's in here. I'll find it somewhere. You know what that means? That means just about every time I get on the plane, I'm blessed to sit in first class. It's nice for people to say, can I have your coat? What would you like to drink? Just nice, really nice, big comfortable. But you know, the Lord says, the only way you get there is you've got to learn to go backwards in order to go forward. You can't just take straight flights. And you call them setbacks. They're not setbacks. They're setups. I'm setting you up for a blessing. And you think you're reversing. No. You got to learn how to use your layovers, Robert Smith. Some of my best times for meditation was a two and a half hour layover. Best time for study. Best time for prayer. Best time for sermonizing. Best time for God to get with me. Two and a half hours layover. And some of you right now, it's a layover for you. And you think that you're wasting time. And God has you right where he wants you. And you call it a waste of time. He's saying, I'm putting you in that position to take you backwards so I can take you forward. you got to be willing to go through your layovers in order to get your upgrade. I want to say to this church, I know you've been at it four years, and maybe some of the four-year periods seem like a layover. Huh? God is doing something in this congregation, and I know it, setting you up to give you an upgrade so that you can lift him up higher and higher and higher and give him praise. Don't think it's a setback. It really is a setup. And this is really what happens because when you read chapter 5, just turn there for just a moment and I'm, I'm about done. This is, this is a good old black Baptist, I'm about done. What that really means is I'm not really about done, but I think I see my exit. So I at least see that. I at least see my exit. Chapter 5 Verses 10 through 12, they celebrate the Passover for the first time. They've already had circumcision for the first time in 40 years. And then the Bible says that they eat of the old corn of the land. Verse 12, and the next day, the manna ceases. God had been baking bread from heaven's kitchen for 40 years. And the reason why God lets them cross the Jordan River at flood stage is because it's harvest season. So when they get to the promised land, they're not to plant anything. Okra's there, corn's there, lima beans, there, black eyed peas, the collard greens there, spinach there, kale is there, butter beans there. All they had to do was to harvest it. 
and they crossed at what they thought was an inconvenient time, and God already had it set up for them. That's why the writer says in Joshua 24, 13, you're going to live in cities that you didn't build. You're going to drink from wells you didn't dig. And you're going to eat from olive gardens that you didn't plant. All I want you to do is to take that which looks difficult, cross over at a time that's inconvenient because I'm setting you up for an upgrade to bless you. Let your surgery be looked upon that way. Let your concern be looked upon that way. It's a layover that's awaiting an upgrade. Well, I have to leave you. And I mean this. You know the reality of what it means to serve the Lord and it seems like it's not going to pay off. A true story told by Ray Stedman who pastored the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California of a missionary couple who had served in Africa for many, many years. And now their service was over and they boarded a ship to come back to the United States. Coincidentally, there was the boarding of the ship by President Teddy Roosevelt at the same time. The people there were applauding him. The band struck up uh, music because the president was on board the ship. The crowds positioned themselves so they could get the best view of the president. And there were those who clapped and applauded as the president aboard boarded the ship. But this couple that got on the ship, when they heard this, wondered about the justice of God. And as they arrived in the United States, got ready to get off the ship, the same thing took place again. Similar fanfare. People applauding the president. The great dignitaries were there as he got ready to get off of the ship. The great men in government were there to greet him and to welcome him home because he had been to Africa in search of big game. The man said, you know, this is not fair. You and I have served the Lord in Africa. And we've come back and our health is broken. We have no pension. We have nowhere to go. And there's no one to welcome us like there are for President Teddy Roosevelt. He was upset with the Lord and his wife said, I think you need to go and talk to the Lord about it. He went into his prayer room, prayed to the Lord and told the Lord how he felt. And you just as well as tell him how you feel because he already knows it anyway. That's what the psalmist meant when he says in Psalm 139 verse 2, he knows our thoughts are far off. So go on and tell him. Because God is not fragile, he is faithful. And he'll let you have the first word, but he reserves the last word for himself. Well, he talked with the Lord and came back with a sense of great optimism and joy. There was a glow on his face. And she said, you talked to Jesus. He said, yes. You feel better? He said, yes. What did he say? He said, well, this is what he said to me. He said, son... You're not home yet. There's no one to greet you down here. But one of these days when life is over and you've done 
your best and you've been faithful in the service of the Lord, there will be someone to greet you in the precinct of paradise. And there you will hear the voice of the Savior saying, Well done, thy good and faithful servants. And uh, angels will be there to greet you. And friends and brothers and sisters who served alongside of you, they will be there to give you their commendation. Well, this is a new beginning. And you've got to make up in your mind that you're not home yet. For there will be trials and uh, temptations. And tribulation will uh, come across your path. But you got to say in your mind, to God be the glory, great things he had. I'm glad today that this is a new beginning. And it's a new beginning because one Friday when the world was steeped in sin and the world was on his way to hell, Jesus took upon himself your sin and mine. And he who knew no sin became sin that we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God. And one Friday he died. Yes, he was not in a coma. He died. He did not faint. He died. He was dead that they didn't break his legs and they put him in a tomb and it looked like it was all over but Sunday morning and I'm glad about Sunday morning he rose from the dead with all power in his hand and because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future then life is worth living because he lives and one of these days when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation to take me home what joy shall fill my soul then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art then sing my soul, my Savior God to thee. That's why I'm getting in practice now singing out of my soul saying you're worthy saying you're honorable saying you're blessed saying you're worthy of thanksgiving because you are God who is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. God wants to do a new thing in your life, not because it's new, but because he wants to make you and I new. So we reflect a God who is the God of creation. And if any person be in Christ, that person is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. New in kind, new in nature, 
new in identity, and new in purpose. Father, thank you for redeeming our lives. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.